Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. We'll start this week with a quote from Lenin. There are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Joining me this week are two of our regulars. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. So the government has just cancelled virtual voting. Jacob Rees-Mogg is claiming democracy will flourish once MPs return to Parliament, although many of them are unable to return due to health issues and caring responsibilities, and it appears to breach employment law. Why are the Tories really so desperate for MPs to come back in the flesh? Um, Whipping is the short answer. It's much, much more difficult to uh, tighten thumb screws when the physical thumb isn't there beneath your screw. Um, and uh, th- that, that there is no more to it than that, as I can see. Um, it, 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 they, they had sort of, you know, far, slightly too many people rebelling on things during lockdown um, when, when they weren't able to come into the Commons or people missing votes and things like that. They don't want that. They don't like that. Um, and this is all part of a, a command and control style government. Uh, they want them back there where the whips can beat them into voting whichever way they want them to go. And Best of Britain has a new report on the combined economic impact of No Deal and COVID-19, which we'll discuss in detail later. Um, the CBI seems to have your back on this one. You're not the only person worried about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, the CBI uh, made a statement yesterday. And of course, uh, 24 hours later, the, we've then had the big Nissan story break, which is um, Nissan saying that there, it, is, it is not viable for them to keep their plant in Sunderland in the event of No Deal. Um, and obviously putting thousands of jobs at risk directly, but also indirectly, uh, because businesses, you know, exist in ecosystems. So whether it's the people that sell sandwiches to the workers going into the plant from a truck in the car park, or, you know, all the way through the supply chain, um, that's going to have a huge ripple effect. So I think we are beginning to see uh, business flex their muscle a little bit more. Um, Obviously, you know, since 2016, they've been pretty disappointing as a you know, a, a cohort that ought to have been more strident. Um, they were quiet during the referendum when they were on the same side as the Prime Minister. Um, so expecting them to be strident now um, at a time when they are, you know, a- opposed to what the government seems to be wanting to pursue and at a time when they are, as we've said on the podcast several times now, in hock to the government, wanting uh, bailouts, wanting um loans wanting uh furlough payments you know it, it's a much more difficult environment for them to feel that they can challenge but you know i think that the the calls from the cbi and others are important because it means you know don't be short-termist don't just think about that think about the long-term viability of your business if you don't speak up now and trying to protect those jobs and keep that investment in the uk ian dunt is editor of politics.co.uk hello ian hey um you're pretty unimpressed by the sight of the Commons' weird socially distanced queuing system. Do you think this return of Parliament is going to work or will they have to U-turn because of all the people that, that can't make it and are effectively being kind of robbed of, uh, of their right to participate on behalf of their constituents? Well, he sort of U-turned a little bit today, to be honest. I mean, during PMQs, he, he, he buried the lead a bit, Johnson, but at the end of one of his answers to Starmer, in which... <laughs> It's not ironic, is it? I mean, I shouldn't even be surprised. In which he was accusing Starmer of being someone that did U-turn. He slotted in his own fucking U-turn, which is to say, oh, by the way, we're going to U-turn on proxy voting. So actually they gave in on proxy voting since yesterday. Um, and he tried to sort of slip that under without much. Thinking. That is not the same as virtual voting at all. But but nevertheless, they're, they're starting to give in on, on that aspect. I imagine that's all we'll get. I don't think we're going to get any more movement from them than that. Do you think the forced experiment of a virtual parliament has been successful? 
Yeah, you know what? It was it, it was actually one of the few things they were doing that was actually kind of working out. Um, and actually, a kind of an area. So, you know, Br- British democracy is not famed for its speed or modernity. And actually, pretty fucking quickly, they were starting to make it work. Um, it wasn't perfect because of the obvious sort of manner. You know, I mean, you are going to have. It's very much harder to make an interjection. It's it's very much harder to scrutinize the government in a virtual setting. It just is. But in terms of actually trying to make something that worked, they were doing it and it was working. And then in this fucking, it's like a, just this classic British and not even really British way, but Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dominic Cummings to the way, they took an actual bit of innovation that was quite effective. I don't know, you know, something like the single market. And so he went, well, you know what? Fuck that. We can find our funny old duddy way of doing this shit. And that would involve people queuing, you know, across half a fucking mile in underground in Westminster. So, yeah, it was working pretty well. And now, unsurprisingly, because they found something they'd done, which is actually effective, they've now fucked it. <laughs> um, events in the UK have been overshadowed by the police brutality in the US, including footage of unprovoked attacks on protesters and journalists. Uh, in fact, there's a London Black Lives Matter protest going on as we speak. Is is this the sort of end of the um, Trump presidency? Do you think? Uh, I, I honestly don't know. Like, there's way, way too many centres of power at the moment in that situation in the US to be able to come up with any accurate appraisal of how things work out. One of them is obviously like central government, uh, local law enforcement, um, sort of state rules, and of course the power of the protesters themselves, and then of course the cultural power that it, that it brings with it in terms of figuring out, you know, is this going to be something that ends in an appalling way? or in a way that actually leads to concrete change, or, or, you know, bits and bobs of that simultaneously. And I think it's kind of impossible at the moment to really tell. I don't know where you've been with this. I've, I found this week really quite emotional. and I, don't, I can't remember the last time I was so affected. And it's quite a strange, because you pick up your social media and you just see these videos for two, three minutes, and then you sort of think, well, now I'm going to go back to work. And it's actually, like, I can't, I can't go back to work after seeing it. So it feels at the moment, my, my thoughts are sort of like, well, what is it in Britain? Cause we don't have any effect with what goes on over there. Of course you don't. So like, it's about what is going on in Britain, having more of a conversation about just how severe the fucking problems are in Britain. And then a conversation about what is it that you're doing? You know, I'm not, I, I'm not a huge fan of this sort of constant sort of self attack that lots of parts of the left have of like, Oh, you know, I'm recognizing my own complicity and I'm recognizing my privilege sort of thing like that. That just seems to me completely complacent right now when what you should be doing is being an ally and seeing what is it that you are doing in your life right now that can actually help. And that at the moment is sort of where I feel, I I hope a lot of the emotional energy in in Britain is going to go. And um, with, with lots of people feeling the pinch at the moment and feeling, um, you know, less able to give to charities and to groups that are doing great work on this. Uh, one of the things that I saw this morning that is a really, really good point is just go and follow loads and loads of black people on YouTube and Instagram and just because they get revenue from the number of views of their videos and the number of subscribers. So that is the way that you can financially support some of these causes without having to make a direct cash contribution, you know, if you're, you're struggling for cash at the moment. So yeah, I think that's a really, really good thing to do. Joining us this week is journalist and author Daniel Trilling. His books include Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, and Bloody Nasty People, The Rise of Britain's Far Right. He wrote a powerful piece for The Guardian last week, headlined The New Immigration Rules Are Not Really About Brexit, They're About Ripping Off Workers, which we'll talk about later. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. 
We've seen news this week that the British police have been disproportionately targeting BAME people during lockdown, and the same people are being hit hardest by job losses, more likely to lose their jobs entirely uh, than to be put on furlough. Are the protests in America inspiring more scrutiny of institutional racism in the UK, in the police and, and elsewhere? Well, I certainly hope they do. And I think you can see already that the government is worried that that's exactly what might happen. And I mean, yeah, I think like other people were saying, it's sort of being being in various stages of lockdown and watching this unfold, what's unfolding in America from a distance via social media creates this uh, quite intense hothouse effect, I think. And I do think it's really important to link what we see happening there to what's happening where we are. Um, and what, what I found particularly concerning this week was the way that the protests in America affected how the government then released uh, the report into how uh, COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting people from black and ethnic minority communities. And what I found concerning about that was how quickly they um, switched into essentially trying to massage the narrative in the way that they've done throughout the pandemic, I think. So, you know, delaying the release of the report. And then there was a story in the Health Services Journal last night that when the report crossed the desk of Matt Hancock, it had an appendix removed that said that racism and discrimination were partly responsible for this disproportionate effect on uh, minority ethnic communities in the UK. And instead, I think the, the, the quote, what Hancock said when he was asked about this yesterday was, oh, Britain's wonderful and welcoming and tolerant and therefore we have no racism here. Um, and obviously the, the the denial of racism racism and discrimination is, is concerning in itself and something that definitely needs to be challenged. But I think also it points to something that's been constant throughout the pandemic, uh, which is essentially this government style of government anyway, which is to just try and sweep away criticisms with this narrative this sort of optimistic cheery narrative of british greatness and i think it's it's actually incredibly toxic and you know when 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 the tories have used that in the past there have been all sorts of reasons to criticize it but now we see it directly affecting people's survival and um this really is just the latest step in that i think and simultaneously, the far right have been using the covid crisis to scapegoat migrants push uh, often racist conspiracy theories um is this just what the far right does, that it exploits any time of, of uncertainty or fear to try and kind of clog, uh, you know, social media um, with with their own kind of spin on it? Yeah, there, there's definitely an element of that. Um, for, the, for the most part, um, far right groups are marginal what they what they do is essentially parasitical on what else is happening in politics and and what they try to do is inject their propaganda into into the wider discourse to pull things to the right um you know small neo-nazi extremist groups have been doing everything from flooding social media with memes to putting up stickers around the uk and elsewhere uh trying to encourage one of you know several different conspiracy theories about um, people from East Asia, Muslims, Jews, and so on. Um, but I think, obviously, now that you have far-right political movements and right-wing populists in actual positions of power, I think that, I think there's more more to it than that. And, and certainly, where those movements are dominant, not least the US, obviously, there's there's a much more potentially destructive relationship between. 
uh, sort of far right rhetoric, the effort to blame minorities, create conspiracy theories, deflect from failings of leaders in power, and to to I mean in in the case of Trump, to actually use all of that to to sort of stoke a sense of conflict. And I mean this this is having a really damaging effect not just in the US in Brazil I think you can you can see the same thing happening it's it's been a disaster for public health policy of course but it's uh, for me the more worrying bit is what comes after that who who's going to be blamed who's going to be trying to push the blame in one or another direction and where people do have power how easy they're going to give it up I think we have to be asking as well This week, the government is beginning the long, slow process of returning to normal. But with their approval ratings plummeting, what kind of country are we returning to? Plus, we'll cover Best of Britain's report on the COVID-Brexit double whammy and speak to Daniel about his recent work on the government's new immigration rules. That's after a few reminders from Naomi. Our next live stream with The Bunker is next Thursday, 11th of June at 8pm, and it's exclusive to our Patreon backers. Sign up. And you can join today's panel, plus Roz, Alex, Aisha, are here, and producer Andrew for a gala two-part evening of sophisticated politics talk, fun with Zoom backgrounds, and scouring whatever is left of the drink <coughs> cupboard. There'll be audience questions at the end too, so sign up now. Search Bunker Patreon to find out how, and to see all our other benefits, like early access to the podcasts, t-shirts, mugs, and advanced notification of a real life live tickets once theatres open again. Huge thanks to everyone who has backed us through the lockdown. The support has been incredible and we're looking forward to raising a glass in thanks to you on Thursday, June 11th. Hope to see you there. Thanks, Naomi. First up, the government's various announcements about horse racing, barbecues and primary schools seemed largely academic as large numbers of the public effectively unlocked themselves at the weekend. The Dominic Cummings scandal has taken its toll on more than just the clarity of government instructions. An opinion poll for The Observer shows that 81% of people think Cummings break the rules. And Conservatives' poll lead over Labour is down to 4% from 12% the week before and 26% in late March. Meanwhile, a YouGov poll, which showed a larger Tory lead, found that 37% of respondents said Boris Johnson would make the best PM, while 32% said Keir Starmer. He closed the gap by seven points. Ian, a lot of people, the more cynical people have said, well, look, everyone, we're a long way from a general election. Everyone will have forgotten the details of uh, Cummings' <laughs> wild road trip by 2024. Um, but has this done something you know, more permanent to trust in the government, even if people don't remember the details in four years' time? We don't know, but the, the, it looks very much like it. it, it is likely to. Um, I mean, there, there isn't... The, the stuff I'm looking at was suggesting, I mean, there really isn't any story sort of over the last decades, really, that's cut through in the way that this has. So much, I mean, much more, by the way, than the story of David Cameron pucking, uh, fucking a pig's head, which seems extraordinary to me, because even though that was almost certainly false, it was extremely amusing. And I really feel it should have been quite widely shared in the country, but apparently only about eight to 10 percent, I think it was, of people paid attention to that story. 51 percent on, on Cummings noticed it. By the way, I mean, it's kind of astonishing when you're a politics person that it's still only 51%. And that's at the absolute top limit of how much a story is noticed. But nevertheless, it was more noticed than most things. And so it seems like it would be. And then you get the real, like the implication of that, which is ultimately that Cummings and Johnson, their entire sort of vision, their paradigm for how to win at politics is to portray whoever their opponents are as the elite and themselves as representatives of the people. Um, now, that's absurd, obviously, objectively on its own terms, when you look at the background of either of those figures, but it was very, very effective. 
Now that central message is almost impossible to fucking deliver because as it happens, this story entirely reversed it. So on that basis, because it was not just because of the story itself, but because it seems to go diametrically opposed to the actual manner in which they've conducted themselves. It seems to me like it's got staying power and we'll, and we'll still be able to make good, effective use of it in four years' time. And this uh, kind of narrowing in the polls has largely happened without Keir Starmer having to do a huge amount. Um, they did just tell the, the government to sort of get a grip today. He's been very good at PMQs. Um, is it time for him where he's going to have to do more to st- establish his, his personality and agenda with the public? Because, I mean, let's remember, he hasn't actually been imposed for that long. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, I'd struggle to imagine what he can do to make that happen. I mean, remember, again, it's very difficult being the opposition leader. This is all the standard sort of punditry thing you say, but it is true. It's hard to be the opposition leader. It's hard to get attention. It's especially hard during sort of moment of national crisis. The, the amount of attention he's getting is pretty good. And he's probably, by the fact that he's not going out there too much, not saying too much, he gets it. So if you look this morning, when he gave that interview to The Guardian saying, well, look, that's it, you know, I'm telling Johnson he's got to get a grip now. Actually, that led lots of sort of BBC radio coverage in a way that if the, if he was talking more often and, and being a little bit less sort of restrained with it, I'm not entirely convinced that it would. So it seems to me at the moment that he's getting the balance about right as he is, I think, with the level of criticism of the government that he's been engaging in. I think it's quite hard to look at how that's operating and the successes he's had so far and think you're way off the mark here. It feels like he, he's getting it about right. Well, there is an idea on the left, which, which I think is a bit of a fallacy, that the more vociferous your condemnation of the government, the more effective it is. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, and, and, and I think the last few years have shown that that's not necessarily <laughs> the case. It certainly can be. There is definitely a time to be gold guns blazing. Um, but yeah, that, it, it, does, it doesn't always work. But, but conversely, the Miliband approach didn't work either. Mm-hmm. So I just think mm-hmm. we, Keir's going to have to be very, very careful not to fall back into that Millibandy triangulating thing and hope that that pays off at the at the, at the ballot box in four years' time because I don't think it would. Naomi, do you think that the, what's happening now is sort of unlocking from below because the public had simply had enough of lockdown, or did has the government squandered its own authority over Cummings over mixed messaging, and that if it, if it had really decided that it wanted to keep the lockdown going longer, then the public would have gone with it. I mean, it was pretty much an admission of defeat last week uh, when Johnson was flanked by Witty and, and Valance and said that they would be releasing uh, some lockdown measures um, because so so many people had begun to flout the rules anyway. Um, I, and I think I think that the, the bit that's most egregious is that because they're doing it without things in place properly, we're going to end up prolonging this pain. It is going to go on longer. Um, if you go back too soon, if you go back to trying to go back to some kind of semblance of normal too soon, then other measures will just have to hold for even longer. Um, and I think that the, the case in point there is really the track and trace. It's not ready. Um, it, it was introduced before they'd ironed out the kinks on it. And again, that was something that Keir uh, really, um, you know, pushed Johnson on in PMQs today, that the government's really trying to walk before, run, run before it can walk on this. Um, and if you mismanage crises, you know, then that you end up prolonging them um, and, and they're not managing it properly. They're being impatient. Um, and that's partly, I think, because the public were beginning to get impatient. But the, the real crime of it all is that we would be able to release better and quicker had we done the testing properly from the start, if we'd had that capacity, if they'd been honest about the lack of capacity at the start, um, and if they'd been able to get their act together on the the testing and tracing, which they patently haven't. 
Well, this seems like a giant gamble because either it is indeed over and, uh, and it's fine and we can all go back uh, and I can go to gigs again, or it's not and people mm. will die. And if the R rate goes up again yeah. um, and the government has to reimpose uh, restrictions that it is lifted, will it be able to sort of get public compliance then, you know, once you've been sort of let out of the box, if it then turns out as like, oh, no, we've got that wrong, back in the box, are people likely to uh, to go along with that? Um, look, it, it's it's a tough one. On, on the R rate specifically, because I'm a good, you know, metropolitan elite Ramona, I actually care about experts and what experts say, um, and I'm not an expert on epidemiology, so I don't know when uh, the R rate will go up and by how much and all the rest of it. But what we do know is that um, infections are increasing somewhere between seven and 9,000 new infections per week. Um, we saw a B&Q store somewhere in the country yesterday had to close immediately and kick all of its customers out because a member of staff had tested positive for coronavirus. Um, where we looked at other countries that have eased lockdown, they've seen spikes. So we, we, we know that's coming. Just as we knew that corona itself was coming, uh, we do know that a second wave will come, um, uh, almost certainly, and not least because our infection rate is still so high. Um, but, but to the point about the compliance, it, it, it's an odd one because when we look at what the, the polling is saying about it, there was an Ipsos Mori poll uh, at the end of last week that I think said that 54% to people felt that the government was lifting restrictions far too quickly and only 27% thinking that they got it right. And then when you combine that though with the, the, the falling trust in government, I think it's, it's really difficult to know how people are going to behave. I, I, my feel is that they are going to do as much as they feel safe doing um, and combined with how much they think they can get away with doing if they do feel particularly safe and bold um, and, and happy to go out. So um, I think following government advice is, as, as Ian said, you know, they, they've shot themselves in the foot over it so badly with, with the coming saga that it's, it, it's unlikely that people are going to follow the letter of the law again, unless they are particularly fearful. I was kind of shocked by the kind of weak messaging on masks that when I was driving through town on, on Sunday, and there was virtually, I didn't see, I went for quite a while without seeing a single mask. And in some countries, that's a huge part of coming out of lockdown. And, and there is, a, I did see a government message about masks, but, but I literally I, I saw it in one tweet and that was it. Yep. And, and none of the MPs are wearing them and none of the scientific advisors are wearing them. And you, you know, you just, you, the, it, 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 once again, it's a sort of do as we say, not as we do. Um, and, and then even saying it particularly uh, loudly, as you said, and, and clearly. And, you know, back again to all muddled messaging, mixed messaging. We had Johnson last week at the press conference on the Thursday say, I'm sorry to say that those who are shielding are going to have to continue to do that for a bit longer. And then within 36 hours, all the press comes out saying, oh, no, you know, two million high risk people can now once again leave their homes. Um, and they were terrified, too, and they didn't know whether to be relieved. And yes, that means something's changed within the last 36 hours. Of course, nothing had changed in terms of um, our infection rate and their safety. So, yeah, masks, shielded people, everything is, continues to be unclear and vague and unhelpful. And whether that's purposely so or not, I don't and know. And that can't just be... I mean, it's, it's, it's not just their messaging. It's, it's 
that any fair-minded person would look at what this government is doing and just thinking, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Like when you look at any area, whether it's the track and trace, whether it's easing up of the lockdown, whether it's Dominic Cummings, whether it's the voting in parliament, every single area you look at, you just think like, you don't seem like you've gone into this with the right motivation. I mean, saying it's based on science seems an increasingly difficult thing to believe. You don't seem like you have the basic competence with which to deliver it. So even if we didn't have this idea of, well, it's one rule for them and another rule for us, you feel like that just the fundamental faith you have in the capacity of the government to deliver on it is hopelessly broken. So if there is another wave, that level of anxiety will be almost unbearable because you don't feel that you have any actual protection for yourself and your family. Daniel, do you think this this whole experience will change the tone of rhetoric on immigration at all? Um, will it be harder? Not impossible, I'm sure Priti Patel will, will prove, but harder to go back to a hostile environment after we've had 10 weeks of, of clapping our heroes, many of whom, um, you know, are, are, are sort of first or second generation immigrants and many of whom have died doing their jobs? Um. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the the hostile environment persists during the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the government has done very little to lift the set of measures that come under that label. Uh, and where it has lifted measures to prevent people who are banned from accessing benefits, for example, from starving to death, it's done it in a very piecemeal way, either on a case-by-case basis or with very temporary measures that will then evaporate once once lockdown conditions are over, most likely. But in terms of the wider rhetoric around migration i know that there was a there, there was a point during lockdown where you know the the contribution of migrant workers to the health service and and, and other key services was was being really praised you know across the media um there was a real political moment where people were pointing out the hypocrisy of certain government restrictions that you know were charging nurses to use the nhs that they were helping prop up and the rest of it and you know that was having an effect on public opinion as well but i'm i mean i i try to be optimistic when i can but i'm fairly pessimistic about the the sort of lasting change this at least it won't it won't inevitably lead to a a, a lasting change because i think actually the constant factor in british political discourse on on immigration going back decades and decades is a sort of dual a dual discourse where you're you you have certain approved migrants being praised for the contribution often around the NHS and that's you know the trade-off is that there's also the bad migrants on the other side the people that are either not playing by the rules who are taking jobs when they shouldn't be who are causing some sort of unwelcome uh, phenomenon in the UK obviously that distinction is total bullshit it's you know the, the the praise and the opprobrium are targeted at the same individuals in many cases and there have been a series of moments throughout that history when that kind of hypocrisy has been revealed and governments have been forced to back down on it but it it takes a bit more than that to kind of push a sort of more substantial change I mean if you know it's only two years since the Windrush scandal which is the last time I think this paradox was at the forefront of political debate where you had elderly Caribbean immigrants who were being praised rhetorically for their contributions to British public services over the last four decades or so at the same time as the home office was trying to completely screw them over and and until it was exposed by the guardian no one was really interested in what was actually happening to those people next up this week is our covid battered economy able to withstand the additional impact of a no-deal brexit 
A new report from the Social Market Foundation, commissioned by Namie's own Best for Britain, sets out in clear detail the effect of such a double hit on all sectors of the economy and all regions of the country. Among the headline findings are that the Northwest and Midlands would face severe economic disruption, while London and the Southeast, long thought to be largely Brexit immune, would suffer because of their dependence on finance, banking and insurance. And if we leave with no deal, we're highly likely to need another government stimulus bailout to get us through the economic downturn. Naomi, the report is based on the idea there will be a U-shaped recession, which means a slow recovery as opposed to the, the faster V-shaped after coronavirus. Um, what would a no deal do to that economy? So that's an excellent question and, and is partly why we, we did the, the work. Um, you might remember it was about, I mean, Ian will probably correct me on this, about 18 months ago, I think, that the government um, produced its own economic impact assessment reports on Brexit and various different forms of Brexit. And we knew then that every form of Brexit was going to leave the economy worse off than just staying in the European Union. Um, and no one had updated that work in light of what is now a recession that some economists are predicting is going to be the worst for 300 years. Um, and so we wanted to sort of revisit those impact assessments in light of uh, what, what is being mooted is going to be the, the aim of Johnson's free trade agreement and no deal uh, in, in the context of this massive corona recession. Um, and what the Social Market Foundation did was they, they used a storm warning. You know how you get a Category 5 hurricane or a Category 1 or whatever. So it's, it's that scale 1 to 5 where 5 is the most severe. And that maps the combined COVID-Brexit threats. And the results are so sobering. And what, it, what it's able to do is to kind of bust the myth that is coming out of number 10 um, and that lots of Tories are muttering around, which is that, oh, well, look, if we have to do no deal, We've got this get out of jail free card because we can bury the bad news in the corona recession. We've proven that you can't actually. There is going to be this extra severe economic hit to certain regions and section, uh, certain regions and sectors um, if if they pursue no deal. So uh, you know it, it, it's showing that there's probably around seven million jobs that are in these high risk sectors. Um, that are doubly impacted by both. Um, and then, of course, you've got regions like Wales, which we know will be very badly affected by no-deal Brexit, but actually are less affected by coronavirus because they have much higher levels of public sector employment there. Um, so, so the regions, uh, you've, got, you've got the Northwest, you've got the West Midlands, you've actually got the East of England as well, that are both going to have this terrible economic shitstorm. London is also in the severe category, but we know from previous recessions that London is more resilient, tends to be able to bounce back more easily, largely because it's got a, a younger, well-educated workforce that can adapt and change their skills into different sectors more nimbly. And of course, because it's had so much more investment uh, than other regions of the UK over time. So um, there is a very tangible impact, a negative economic impact from No Deal, but also from Johnson's FTA, uh, on top of the awful figures that we're going to have as a consequence of the corona recession. Um, and the government will have been spending billions to prop up the economy um, by the time, if No Deal happens. What kind of sums would be required for an additional No Deal-related stimulus package? Uh, look, that is a really hard thing to quantify for the economists because there are so many variables but it's safe to say it would be many billions we've already got record levels of um, uh, public borrowing and they would have to increase by the billions for sure and then and another thing that the report didn't really factor in is that we will also be facing the new immigration point system and the impact that that 
on top of everything else could then have. So what we don't know is exactly how many businesses will change their investment decisions as a consequence of this double whammy, this double storm, how many jobs that therefore puts at risk, and then what that ripple effect would be, uh, that multiplier, negative multiplier effect happens, um, as, as I sort of mentioned earlier with Nissan, if more of that happens. But yeah, it would be uh, a, a very large extra uh, level of, of borrowing that would have to happen on top of this. Um, Ian, it seems like it would be politically unfortunate for the government to have to announce it was launching another bailout specifically to cover the effects of its own refusal to extend transition. Do you think that if such a if such a bailout happened, it would be just sort of dressed up as kind of a phase two, you know, corona package rather than anything to do with no deal? Is it, po- is it, is it possible to 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 completely detach that from the consequences of no deal. Sorry, I mean, what crazy cynicism. Are you suggesting <laughs> that in some way this government would lie about Brexit in some way? That's, I just can't understand how you've got into such a terrible part of life. Um, yeah, that's exactly what they're going to fucking do. I mean, and obviously coronavirus is... I mean, it is a bigger economic impact, I think, than even no deal Brexit. And it is going to give us an absolute twatting. It currently is giving us a twatting and it's going to give us the twatting of our lives. That's, that's what the story of the next few years is. And in that context, maybe every government would do it, man. Maybe anyone would just sort of go like, well, you know, anything that goes wrong, we blame on coronavirus. I mean, it seems a pretty instinctive thing, but these guys. These, these fucking guys are going to blame everything on coronavirus that they possibly can. So yeah, th- that's exactly what they're going to go for. I do, the question to me, do you remember like, I mean, Naomi would always um, say this stuff and, and other researchers too during the Brexit thing. of You can get people to shift their opinions on bits of Brexit when you leave behind the debates they already know and go to the debates that they don't yet have an opinion on. There was a while that we could do it on impacts on the NHS under no deal and stuff like that. Well, it seems to me that like the recent coming stuff is like that times 100. You know, you put away all of those old tribal fights and you come up with a completely new story. And then it's like, does, does your culture war work now? And suddenly it didn't. So the question then for the government will be, can we bring that kind of tribal approach to, to people's judgment, to the way that people evaluate political information back in the post sort of COVID era over the next few years when it comes to, to the Brexit stuff, or are they frozen in place? Will there be contamination of the lack of trust from the coming story and the, the increasing sort of scepticism over the handling of COVID that would actually drift onto the Brexit stuff? Or will that just become still locked in place in the way that it has been, you know, since 2016? They'll be very much hoping that there is no cross-contamination. And for rather obvious reasons, I'll be rather hoping that there has been. D- uh, Daniel, the report shows the impact would... Uh hit Brexit land pretty hard, although not exclusively Brexit land. Um, we don't really expect economic arguments to wash with the kind of hardcore Brexiters. But presumably economic experience will matter to first time Tory voters, you know, in, in, in former Labour seats. Is this the kind of thing that will, uh, you know, which is going to basically threaten that, that territory that the Tories have annexed? I mean, it- it will threaten those places materially, I think, as you've, as you've already discussed. What kind of political response that leads to really depends on the narratives that are built around it. So, I, like you mentioned earlier, my, my first book was on Britain's far right, and it was, about, it was about the British National Party. I wrote it, you know, I was doing the reporting for that around 10 years ago. I was visiting the towns around England where the BNP were having councillors elected, and those 
roughly speaking, map onto what people might describe as Brexit land now. You know, um, a lot of uh, former industrial towns where people felt a sense of abandonment for various different reasons and it was being expressed in a growing vote for the far right. I think the misconception around that time that I think could happen again is that it's it's all a response to kind of an immediate economic shock and then people react one way or another and I think I think the bigger factor is much more about the slow draining away not just of wealth but of power you know people can feel that in their towns that their political decisions count for less because than they did maybe 30 or 40 years ago because because of the cultural positions places might occupy uh nationally you know the role that local government plays the power given to local government and the rest of it you know there there might have been a time when people on the left thought oh well that will obviously benefit us because people will see it was all the result of tory mismanagement or austerity or whatever else and yeah you know that has been, I think we can conclude now that was mistaken. Um, and I, th- I think the, the same issues are going to be there post-coronavirus, post-whatever kind of Brexit takes place, which is it, it's really about who's able to build the, the, the more powerful narrative about what's happened to the country, uh, why and wh- where they want to take it. And I know you, you were discussing earlier how uh, it's not always great for the left to just be vociferously opposing uh, things, you know, that isn't always the most effective way of um, leading an opposition. You know, th- you can point to any number of failures of that approach in the last few years in the Labour Party, but I think the, the one area where they were onto something that I wish they'd explored more was in their fairly halting attempts to craft a new kind of narrative about England. There was there was an election campaign video or a political broadcast video done I think it was the Christmas before last. It was very squarely aimed at towns in England. And I thought that that wrapped up this narrative about well, what's gone wrong in these places. Why has power and influence drained away? Why have our economies gone south? And how can we build something different without immediately turning it into this kind of English nationalist, anti-immigration, culture war thing that we you know, see endlessly at the moment i think i think the real challenge is it it's all there for for grabs really but you need people to get in and engage politically and try and pull people in one or another direction um ian this week we learned from one of those pesky anonymous sources that cummings was planning to resign in six months time obviously that hasn't been confirmed once once brexit was done i mean does that are they really does that you know if that's to be believed are they really just keeping him on with all the damage that that has done to their reputation, to the public health messaging, because they think that he has to be there to sort of see through the process. Does that Not really. Um, I don't think it's to do with Brexit specifically, although that's obviously like a major part of what they do. It's to do with the fact that they just don't think there's any function to government without him. Because, you know, what, what is it that Boris Johnson actually fucking wants? You know, he doesn't what is it that he stands? There's nothing there. There's no program for government. I mean, there's just nothing there. So without Cummings, there is no spine to the sort of message the government puts out. There's no narrative. It so happens that his narrative is just the most venal, god-awful, fucking bovine filth that I have ever seen in British politics. But nevertheless, at least he's got a narrative. Boris Johnson doesn't even fucking have that. So the reason they can't get rid of him is because they just think, well, we wouldn't know what, why we're even here. Well, what would, yeah, what's, what's Johnsonism? What's like, what's Hancockism, Rabism? 
these these are not oh, these are not ismi people do we have to call him <laughs> hat man um, like frank manswag i saw you tweeted that ian I did, but then I got I got upbraided by the fact that the New Europeans podcast has been doing this for two or three years, apparently. So we are we are. Way way, I think it's too late for us. We can't argue. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they own that. Um, uh, Naomi, two quick ones before we before we finish with this bit. Um, when you surveyed people from Workington, they said the one good thing about coronavirus is that it stopped everyone talking about Brexit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there is is there a risk then uh, that Brexit get Brexit done will cut through once again if that story comes back? You know, is that is that sort of the the exasperation which which kind of really helped the Tories win the last election um, still a powerful force? So that exasperation is definitely we want Brexit gone, not not Brexit done. Um, which was a point I tried to make during the general election campaign. So we've done um, focus groups across the red wall seats and we also polled Workington. And if you remember, Workington is this uh, very totemic seat where the Tories were told in the general election in 2019 that if they could just convince Workington man to back them, then that whole red wall turns blue. Um, And and what's interesting there is that those, um, those, those voters are giving their MP permission to go for an extension. They want one crisis at a time to be dealt with. They do not want the country to be facing two. And they're very, very clear on that. Um, And they are particularly clear on things like um, international cooperation in order to help uh, get PPE, to get a vaccine on research and testing and things like that. so, you know, I think I think the Tory MPs up there are very anxious. They know that in many of those places, those votes were lent to them by lifelong Labour voters. I have some concern that once you've crossed the Rubicon and you voted Conservative and your you know grandfather didn't rise up out of his grave and whack you around the head, then it's easier for you to do it again next time. But 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 what we heard back from them all was that they are very, very uh, supportive of the levels of investment that they were told they were going to get, they believe in that that you know that that Cummings because obviously it's not Johnson philosophy of spending in the north. They're very very worried about what's going to happen, uh, and they are incredibly um, supportive of the government just tackling one thing at a time. And they they know that Brexit has happened. They do know that. They know that it happened. They remember the thirty first of January, um, and they just don't want, you know, an extra catastrophe on top of the one that we've already got. Finally, the question that's the Romaniacs equivalent of Drake's one dance being number one for 15 weeks. uh, (laughs) What is the state of the talks this week? Um, Well, this is one of those questions that is horrible to ask me on a Wednesday when this goes out on a Friday after another sort of two and a half days of of full talks. Um, But the general consensus is that until Johnson is going to get directly involved, um, there aren't going to be major breakthroughs. We do know that the summit is going ahead uh, later on in June. There was some speculation over whether or not enough progress would be made in order for that to happen. Uh, There is a little bit of gossip that there could be a a big reveal from the EU side on state aid. Um, In return, the UK may give way in a bit of ground over regulatory um, alignment stuff. But on the whole, um, I think we're really expecting the big moments of triumph to come um, much later in the year in the autumn when the leaders all get involved because the leaders are going to want to take all the political credit for unlocking the process. (laughs) 
Now it's time for To the Barricades. Every week, a regular picks out a cause close to their heart, and today it's Ian's turn. So my thing is, it's basically, it's the media, right? And, uh, you know, the, apparently media's come and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out, actually, lots of people are looking around and thinking, actually, maybe the media aren't such a bad thing. But the media right now out there are getting fucked very, very hard indeed. And, I mean, chances are, like, you and I, Dorian, will probably know several people, same Daniel, who, who have already been put on furlough or have been made redundant. I mean, we're hurting as an industry quite badly. And that's not just political news. It's not just news journalism. I'm also talking about, you know, music journalism, film journalism, uh, comics journalism, which I'm aware not many people give a tremendous amount of a shit about, but does rather matter to me. And so it's there not is- Workington, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge issue in Workington, the state of comics yeah. journalism right now. Um, and so it does seem like if, if you have kept your salary, now is a pretty good time to support um, journalism. Now, it's a really good time to just buy a shitload of magazine subscriptions. I'm currently, I mean, there's no fucking way I'm ever going to read any of these things. I'm setting up like some New Yorker type torment for myself of just a growing pile of these things. But now is a good time to sign up to the magazines about things that you like. I mean, don't fucking buy Gardner's World or whatever if you don't like gardening, but just actually the stuff you like out there, get the magazine, get the actual physical products coming and have it delivered to your door, which is anyway quite a nice thing to have. The same for, I mean, I keep on just finding myself pushing Patreon money at sort of comics websites and independent websites that I think are doing good work where there's an avenue there for them to, for you to help them just doing it. Ultimately, if there's journalism out there that you are enjoying and it doesn't have to be worthy political stuff, it could be any kind of, and, and you've kept your salary, give them a bit of fucking money because right now those guys really, really need it. Well, it's like Naomi saying about the... Um you know, trying to support Black Lives Matter as well. It's like pretty much a lot. Of, the only thing that a lot of people can do at the moment is push donations in the right yeah. directions. Yeah. So it's just that's not know, a minor thing to do, there's, right? There's yeah, many like, money, money. There's there's many directions exactly. Our guest this week is Daniel Trilling, author of books about the far right and refugees. He's also written several long reads for the Guardian, including a history of the Greek neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn. Daniel, the government has only partially eased restrictions on immigrants receiving care and benefits in the crisis, as you mentioned, and has resisted evacuating detention centres. Uh, Pretty Patel is, is up to her uh, normal mischief. Do you think the cruelty is, to some extent, the point of these policies, or is it an unfortunate byproduct of just not caring? Um, no, I, I think uh, if, if you look at the, the origins of, of the, the hostile environment, which was a decision in 2012 taken uh, when Theresa May was Home Secretary to toughen a set of immigration policies and restrictions with the deliberate intention of making life in the UK so difficult for people that didn't have the right to be here that they would voluntarily leave. Then you see that, that cruelty is there by design. And what Theresa May and the Home Office were told right from the outset by people who worked in the, the immigration sector uh, or are from migrant communities was that this was not only not going to work as intended, but it was it, it would cut across the lives of so many more people who live in the UK, often with uh, permission to be here, uh, because the the way that immigration policy works for people from outside the European Union is there's a plethora of different kinds of immigration status, temporary, precarious, the rest of it. Often situations are unclear uh, and and need quite complex bureaucratic work to resolve. And what the hostile environment did was just put this 
sort of guillotine right through the middle of people's lives in, in various sorts of ways. Also always feel duty bound to point out that what Theresa May was doing there was building on a set of policies already put in place by New Labour because I feel like they shouldn't ever get away with this entirely. What we've seen during the uh, pandemic is, is is an attempt to maintain as much of that as possible, which really was happening anyway. So I know that after the Windrush scandal, Sajid Javid, when he was briefly Home Secretary, said the hostile environment is over. But he only really meant that as a in terms of the phrase hostile environment. The policies remained and they largely still remain even now. Um, often if you talk about immigration policy, there is the moral dimension. There is also the question of whether it is even economically realistic. British workers don't take up the jobs once filled by migrants. Could the government start granting exemptions to work here once the new rules are in place? Do you expect some kind of uh, loosening of the restrictions simply because there is a labour shortage? Um, well, you can see that already in, in the plans for a new immigration system, the government's already made one concession, which is on seasonal agricultural workers, where they've already said there will be a sectoral uh, temporary visa scheme. Uh, I think so far they've been quite adamant that they don't want to introduce more of these. But if you look at the progress of the immigration bill, which is still making its way through the system, uh, regardless of the the current pandemic situation, um, you can see that there's very little detail on what they actually will do with it. And I think that they're going to be faced with this choice, which is either try and find workers in the UK to fill jobs where there are shortages and various different industry sectors are warned of shortages, or they'll have to start making more concessions along the lines of um, the the visa scheme they've already announced for agricultural workers. Mm. And you wrote last year about how the media in Britain was complicit in fueling the migrant crisis. And rather startlingly, the Sun published and then quickly deleted a uh, a hard right conspiracy theory during the the election campaign. Um, do you think it's ever will these people will these publications ever be held accountable? Is this because obviously during the particularly uh, during the Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, there was this kind of uh, extreme frustration um, with the positions of of these um, of these newspapers and you know, with what's been happening with Black Lives Matter, there's been a lot of attention to various racist things that they've published. Is is there any is there anything that can change that? When it comes to the kind of more malicious right-wing propaganda that's, that's published in certain newspapers, I think they've shown over time that they're really only uh, accountable to their readers. So, that, you know, the famous example is The Sun and Liverpool. You know, that it takes it takes extreme anger from a community of your own potential customers to really force a change in that respect. In terms of the broader media, uh, the, the piece you referred to about the media and the migrant crisis was that was more about failings in the media industry more generally, not just in Britain, but elsewhere, where I, I always had the feeling, having reported on the refugee crisis over a period of four or five years, that it was... You know that yeah, there was there was a large degree of kind of hostile, racist, and xenophobic media coverage coming from certain outlets all around Europe. But the the wider problem was more to do with the way that journalists actually gather and tell stories. So, you know, I worked on this topic for a long time and tried to build up a pattern of what was going wrong with EU border policy, what the sort of long term factors were that fed into the refugee crisis of twenty fifteen. I could see how. 
most news outlets were sort of unable to bring that into the story they were telling because what they were doing was going back and forth between the different flashpoints of the crisis. So, you know, there would be boats arriving in uh, the Aegean in, in on Greek islands one week, so everybody would rush there. Then it would be the crisis is in Sicily or in the Mediterranean and they, they, would, they would rush over there. And there was not enough work done sort of filling in the background or even the way that migration is dealt with as a subject, I think, again, you get this this constant oscillation between the good and the bad migrants. So, you know, um, a right-wing newspaper might do a story on refugees in Calais where they choose pictures of entirely young men of African origin trying to make it look like a sort of threat at the gates of Britain, whereas a more sympathetic media outlet might go and try and humanise people and look for people in particularly vulnerable situations. And I think, actually... For me, there's there's problems with both ways of doing it because neither tell enough of the story to give audiences a proper understanding, you know, of what, what situations people are in, what are the various political failures and conflicts that have led them to be in that situation, and also how do people actually make decisions when they're, you know, in in difficult on on difficult migration journeys. Daniel, I've got a quick question for you. Um, are there any good examples globally of countries that you think are getting it right or at least doing it a hell of a lot better than others when it comes to immigration that we could learn from? Um, on the issue of refugees and asylum, I think you can point to lots of specific examples where people make the right decisions. And that might not be the entirety of a country's policy, but there's there's things definitely worth highlighting and saying, this is good, we need more of it. I mean, what one of the big background factors in the refugee crisis in Europe in 2015 and then more so the year after was a complete breakdown in solidarity between European uh, member states. You know, people refusing to abide by agreements they'd made on resettling refugees from Italy and Greece and, you know, uh, spreading the work around the EU. When it's come to the situation we have now, I think there's actually been slightly more positive signs on that. So there are thousands of people living in very unsanitary, unsuitable conditions in Greece uh, who are in, in refugee camps there who are, you know, under real threat from the coronavirus pandemic. And you've actually seen a Europe-wide effort to evacuate um, some of the most vulnerable people from those camps. And I think you can point to examples where states have come together in solidarity and try to improve things in that way. Um, in general, the states that I think get refugee and asylum policy better are the ones that try and support the international system of refugee protection, are enthusiastic about resettling people in their own countries, but also giving money to countries where large numbers of people have been displaced. Um, Canada is often the country um, that comes up there. And an interesting thing about Canada is that until, I think, the 1970s, it had an extremely harsh and quite explicitly racist whites-only immigration policy. So there was no, there's no natural reason why Canada has to be that. And, you know, it was the result of people saying we can do things differently, making those arguments and winning them within that country's political culture. So to me, that's a, that, that, you know, that's an optimistic story. You like Canada? <laughs> In that respect, at least. Um, so finally... Daniel, I remember sort of pre-Trump, when I heard the word Antifa, I thought of, um, you know, people, for example, in Greece opposing Golden Dawn. 
um, and uh, as as the name suggests, anti-fascists. Um, and in the US, Republicans are kind of using the terms Antifa and left-wing activism simultaneously. And Antifa is a kind of a bogey, bogeyman. Um, and this sort of sinister, all-powerful kind of black-clad sort of conspiracy. You know, as someone who's kind of written a lot about the far right and obviously also opposition to the far right, why is why has Antifa become this kind of bogeyman for for Trump and the Republicans? Mm. Why is it so effective? Well, I think what I've yeah, I mean, what I've been thinking recently about the US is the way that this with with this kind of moral panic over Antifa activists that Trump is trying to stoke in the last week or so. Um, combined with the sort of already more embedded conspiracy theory that everything is done by Soros and international NGOs and the rest of it, you've now got the contours of what used to be the real classic far-right anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, you know, that there are powerful international actors controlling everything from the top and this sort of faceless, subversive international undercurrent on the other side. And obviously... It's it's not being articulated specifically as being anti-Semitic, but the the echoes between the two things I've I've found particularly disturbing. Why Trump is picking up on 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 Antifa specifically? I mean, I did wonder if he he particularly dislikes them because because they were they were blamed for starting those protests immediately after his inauguration. So he's probably got a bit of a sore spot there. But I think it's just it's a convenient it's a convenient bogeyman, you know, the the idea of black clad anarchists wrecking everything um it's that that's a claim not limited to the far right i mean how many times have we heard that over the last 10 years in britain you know when there have been anti-government protests or people uh being disruptive there's always got to be some hidden network behind it because politicians don't often like to accept that there are sometimes just large numbers of people who are genuinely very angry with what they've done was that whole thing about paid protesters. And when you consider the way protesters are being treated in America at the moment, I don't know what you would have to pay people to be tear gassed, shot with rubber bullets, arrested. Like the whole idea, the conspiracy doesn't even stand up on, on logical grounds. But anything, I suppose they have to believe anything except that people are actually acting out of sincere uh, moral mm. principle. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Daniel. Listeners can find his books and articles over at his website, danieltrilling.co.uk. How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. We're building a bridge back to Europe faster than Michael Gove unliking a porn tweet. (laughs) 
Daniel Chilling, what uh, what kind of what kind of abstract value would you like to place on the bridge? Okay, this is me being unnecessarily controversialist, perhaps, but I think that we could do with contributing a little dose of Euro scepticism to Europe. Oh. Rewind. Rewind. The bridge is falling down. You've broken the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> the reason, the re- there's a serious reason why I'm saying this. Like, I mean, like, like I said, I've one of the one of the main stories that I've worked on in the last decade is the failure of Europe's border policy, um, which is something that's led to mass death in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, the the situation has not improved, and I feel like the ability to discuss that in British political debate has been really erased by the Brexit culture wars because essentially it neither side really wants to to go there. And I think that you know while politically we may be dis, you know detaching from Europe we're still a part of Europe. Um citizens in our country have still got a voice and can use it to speak up about what's happening elsewhere in Europe and to argue for things to be improved there as well as here. So Apologies for winding you up. You <laughs> no, no, that's that, that that's a good one. The good of the bridge still stands. Very it. good, cool. <laughs> Finally, it's time for our theme song, "Demon Is a Monster" by Corner Shop. If you're listening to this on Friday, June the fifth, Bandcamp is waiving their fees today, so 100 percent of the money spent on the website goes to this artist and every artist. Search Bandcamp Corner Shop to get all their music there, plus all kinds of other good stuff. So, thanks to Ian, Naomi, and Daniel. We'll end with. Thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and many thanks from me to Alex Selden, Julian Blewett, David Harford, Skip McMillan, Adele Bear, Owen James, and Bucky O. And thanks from me to Ruth Hendrick, Matt Smith, Sam Tompkins, Elizabeth Humphreys, Chris Howard, Liam Gordon, and Adele. And thanks for me to Sinead Morin, Mary Calderwood, James O'Connor, Nick Hayward, Catherine, Andrew Nelson and Claire Comerford. Take care. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 